Um, good morning, Redpoint Church. Um, it is so good to be with you guys this morning, and a happy new year to you. Um, just want to mention, I think I should change the mic. I don't want to make Tim work hard. You're right, Tim? Are you sure? Okay. It's fine. Okay, cool. I know, it's it my fault, guys. But um, basically, um, before I start, um, I know Mike's been very kind and, and all of this stuff, but a lot of the stuff I've learned at Redpoint um, has been because of Mike Mills. Um, uh, I came into Redpoint, I think, 16 or 17 years of age, and Mr. Mills took me alongside, and he just um, took me on a journey. <laughs> and um, I'm really grateful to you, Mr. Mills. I call him Mr. Mills, Major Mills, Mike Mills, but I uh, really have a huge affection for you, so thank you. And I'm also even grateful to my parents, who can't be here, but really grateful for the role that they've played in my life. So I'm going to start this morning at the beginning um, of New Year's. And basically, I heard a story recently where someone um, was telling me about this atheist. Um, and basically, he, he said to me, you know, well, well, not necessarily to me, but he just said that this guy in particular is very... He doesn't want to know about God. He's not interested in God. In fact, he makes a point. He makes a point of um, not wanting to get to know God by going hunting on a Sunday. So, one particular day he went hunting. And as he was climbing um, up this mountain with his rifle and his bag and his binoculars, what ended up happening was he got startled as he got to the top of the hill by a bear. And he was so startled that he lost balance and began to fall backwards. And as he was falling backwards, the, rolling down the hill, the bear was chasing him. Unfortunately, his rifle went flying the other way, and his bag went flying the other way, and his binoculars. And by the time he, got to the, by the time he, he came to rest um, at the bottom of the mountain, or, or the hill rather, he, he realized that the bear was chasing him. And as he tried to get up, he found out that his, both of his legs were broken. That was a very unfortunate circumstances. So out of desperation, he begins to, um, he looks up to the sky and he calls out and he says, God, please help me. I promise I will do anything. Just make this bear a Christian. <laughs> so what ended up happening was the bear, lightning flashed. Um, that was the experience. And the bear came to a sudden stop. And the guy was relieved because he could not believe that that had happened. But he kept looking at the bear to see what the bear would do. And the bear, what he saw the bear do was lift his head to the sky and lift his hand and say, Thank you, Father, for the food I'm about to receive. <laughs> Amen. So, a bit closer. Further. All right. So, is that better? Okay. Sorry, guys. It's a little bit too close, dude. Okay, thank you. So, I hope this new year greeted you well with warmth and kindness. But if it didn't, I just want to remind you, in number 6, verse 25, when God um, um, spoke to the high priest, he said to the high priest, this is what you must tell my people. The Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. And I want to remind you guys this morning that if you perhaps have had a rough start to the new year, I want to remind you that the face of Jesus, the smile of God, shines on you this morning. And um, 
Today, this morning, I'm going to be talking about the centrality of Jesus to his church. And I'm going to stick a lot to my notes because I really feel that God is wanting to deposit something with you guys. And I don't want you guys to miss it. And so when I say that Jesus is central, when I use the word centrality, what I am saying is that Jesus is completely necessary. What I'm saying is that when I say that Jesus is necessary, I'm saying that he is indispensable, meaning that he is too important to not have. When I say that Jesus is necessary, I say that he is inescapable, meaning that he is impossible to avoid and impossible to prevent. If you guys have ever watched the Avengers Endgame, you will recall a gentleman by the name of Thanos who said, I am inevitable. My friends, I want to tell you this morning that it is a big lie because Jesus is the one who is inevitable. When John describes the Jesus that he sees in the book of Revelation, he describes the Jesus who is not weak or unimpressive. Instead, the Jesus that he sees is intense, powerful, and difficult to describe. Jesus who is magnificent and powerful and and uncontrollable stands in the midst of his church. So this morning, we will be spending our time looking at Revelations chapter 1 verses 12 to 13, if you have your Bibles. Oh, it will go up on the screen. And this is what it says. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the golden lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, I would like to start off by asking you a question. What would it have meant for the early churches to have read a letter from John where he said to them, he had a vision, and in that vision, he saw Jesus standing amongst them? The reason why I'm asking this question is because around the period that John wrote the book of Revelation, most of the churches were experiencing heavy persecution for their faith. If you have read church history, you will know that some of the ways the Christians were treated were pretty barbaric. Some were thrown to the lions. Some had their limbs ripped from their body by animals. Some were even impaled and greased up and then lit up like torches alive and then left to die. One particular brutal method that was described by a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus, he said this, Christians would be dressed up in wild animals. And then they would be released, and the dogs would be released on them. And the dogs mistaking them for wild animals would tear them to pieces. The sad part is, is that even though some of them did not go through that, many of them knew people who did. For many of them, it would have been their loved ones. And you know what's this crazy part? The crazy part is that it is easy for us to read about these stories and to be challenged by them and to be moved by the actions of these people. But I would like us to place ourselves in their shoes for a moment. Imagine if that was about to happen to you or to your loved one. What would you do? How would you respond? How would it affect the way that you responded to the words of Jesus? Like, for example, the command from Jesus to love your enemies. The bigger question I would like to ask you is, if you decided to face this persecution, what do you think you would need or what is the one thing that you think would, you would, would have enabled you to face it? What is that one thing? For the early church, God gave them something that would give them the courage to face it. And if it was enough for them, 
then it is enough for us. So my question to you this morning is, what did God give his church? Well, God gave to his church through John a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now take note of the first thing that John sees in the vision. The first thing that John sees is Jesus in the midst of his churches. Now I want us to take a closer look at the churches that stand amongst Jesus and take note of where they are in their walk of God. We have the church of Ephesus. Jesus is in the midst of the church in Ephesus who has forsaken his first love. He is in the midst of the church in Smyrna who was about to suffer persecution. He is in the midst of the church in Pergamum that needed to repent. He is in the midst of the church in Thyatira that was tolerating a false prophet, Tess, who is apparently called Jezebel. He is in the midst of the church in Sardis that has become complacent and had fallen asleep. He is in the midst of the church in Philadelphia that was patiently enduring. And he is in the midst of the church in Laodicea that was lukewarm. A majority of these churches mentioned in Revelation are in a less than ideal state. But take note of where Jesus is. He is in their midst. Now you might be asking me this question, and I'll use a young terminology. Does it mean that Jesus approves of what is happening in their churches? My answer to you would be no, because he definitely has things to say to them. This is because the Jesus who stands in their midst is dressed up in garments that symbolize that he is a high priest and that he is a king. And as a high priest, he stands in the midst of them as one who is their defender and their helper. But as king, he stands as one who is their judge and their ruler. But take note of this one thing. The lampstands are made of pure gold and they are burning. Pure gold is precious and untainted. And this is how Jesus chooses to view his church. And this is also what Jesus is forming his church to become. So now, before I carry on, I just want to uh, mention something to you. And so when I'm talking about the church, I'm not talking about a building and an organization. What I'm talking about when I refer to the church, I'm referring to every individual that makes up the church. So when I say that Jesus is here in our midst, I would like, to pic- I would like you to picture him standing close to you, taking note of your every move and your every thought, not because he's trying to catch you out, but because he's deeply interested in your life. I remember reading a book on church history a while back, and it's quoted an intellectual guy who found it hard to believe in Jesus. And this is what he had to say. The Jewish and Christian God is ridiculous. Its followers claim on the one hand that God is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, high above every creature. But on the other hand, they depict God as a busybody who's constantly delving into human affairs, who goes into every home listening to what is said, and even checking what is being cooked. This is sheer contradiction and nonsense. This man struggled with with Jesus because of that. But friends, I'm here to tell you this morning that this is Jesus. He is a God who cares deeply for his people, and he's a God who is deeply interested in them, in every one of his people. In fact, I'm reminded of Psalm 8, verses 3 to 4, which says, uh, When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you think of him, and a son of man that you are concerned about him? The psalmist poses a good question here. When one thinks that the earth can fit into the sun 1,3 million times, and yet the sun is just one of over 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, 
and the Milky Way galaxy is just one of about two, two trillion galaxies estimated to be in our universe, one would begin to wonder why God could possibly care for humans. Let's keep going. Now, the first thing that John sees when he turns around to see who is talking to him are seven golden lampstands. I've said that before. This is worth paying attention to because if we look at the first time a golden lampstand appears in the Bible, it is in Exodus 25, where we find God instructing his people to build for him a house and to furnish it because he wants to come and live among them. The lampstand was one of the uh, furniture that God himself had designed for his own. And when it was completed, it was placed in the holy place. Now, the purpose of the lampstand was to provide light in the evening, and it was the responsibility of the high priest to light the lampstand in the evening and to make sure that it kept burning until morning. So in order to ensure that the, that the lampstand burns throughout the night, the priest had to make sure that every day the lampstand was replenished with enough oil. Now, the lampstand carried with it some symbolisms. The lampstand was symbolic of God's presence with his people. It symbolized that God is light and that God is life. The reason why it symbolized that God is light was because it provided light. And the reason why it symbolized that God is life was because it was designed to look like a tree of life. So the lampstand in Exodus symbolized God's character as one who gives life and one who gives light. But it also symbolized the calling of the people of God to be bearers of that life and light. So when we come back to Revelations 1 and see the church as a lampstand, it would have been a reminder to the readers about their calling to be bearers of life and light. Now, the, the daily temptations that the church faces is to either fail to be the bearer of light and life or to act as if they are the source of the life and the light. When the church does either of that, it ceases to be what it is called a lampstand. This is because the lampstand does not provide its own light. It has to be lit up by someone. This is because the lamp does not provide its own light. All right? In Exodus, the high priest was in charge of lighting the lamp. And if that was the responsibility of the high priest, then my question to you this morning is who is in charge of lighting the church's lamp? Well, the passage that we read in Revelation 1 pictures Jesus amongst his church, and it highlights to us what he is wearing. Many scholars agree that the outfit that Jesus is wearing in John's vision symbolizes that he is high priest and that he is king. So if Jesus is our high priest, then what this means, friends, is that Jesus is the one who provides the light. In the book of Acts, Jesus, when he is speaking to his disciples, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. He says to them that when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they will receive power to be his witnesses, beginning where? In Jerusalem and with their witness extending to the ends of the earth. What happens is that they wait. And then one day, this is what happens. And we pick up the story in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. I'm going to read it from the J.B. Phillips translation. That when the actual day of Pentecost came, they were all assembled together. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven, like the rushing of a violent wind, and it filled the whole house where they were seated. Before their eyes appeared tongues like flames, which separated off and settled above the head of each of one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them power to proclaim his message. So here we see Jesus lighting his lampstand, 
And the first thing that happened is that people begin to do what? Begin to bear witness of his majesty. Notice that no one had to stop them and that no one had to convince them. In fact, the people who were there were so surprised because they were saying, can't we hear them in our own language proclaiming the wonders of Jesus? But as we read further, we notice why no one could convince them. And, that was, and we begin to notice as well that their lives began to bear witness to Jesus. My question to you is, what changed? What changed the disciples from being fearful people hiding in a house to confident people sharing and bearing witness to Jesus? The only thing that changed, friends, was that the life of God was flowing through them. And the reason why it flowed was because they were waiting for him. A preacher by the name of John Piper said this, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will, will prove, will be, oh, sorry, let me start again. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Imagine how different we would be if we gave more of our time to waiting on Jesus. There's another story, and it is found in Zechariah chapter 4, where Zechariah has a vision where he sees the lampstand and two olive, olive trees. The one olive tree symbolizes the high priest, and the other olive tree symbolizes the governor or the king. What is fascinating is that the lampstand has pipes running directly from the trees to the lampstand to provide fuel for the fire to keep the lamp burning. Now, Zechariah sees this vision and doesn't know what it means. So the angel has to explain to him, and this is what the angel says, and I'll pick it up from Zechariah 4 verses 6. This is the Lord's message to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, not by strength and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The angel goes on to say that through the work of the Holy Spirit flowing through the governor, whose name is Zerubbabel, the temple of God will be built. Now, friends, if Jesus is high priest and king, then know that he who started the work of building his church will bring it to completion. He who started the work in his, in your life, in your and my life, he is the one who will finish it. 1 Peter 2 verses 4 says that as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus is building his church. Like living stones, let us give him the space to do what he needs to do. And let us allow him to place us where he wishes and to do with us what he pleases. Now, many of you would have read the letters to the seven churches. And as you have listened to me speaking, you may be asking, but Pete, what about the places when Jesus says to his church, to the one who conquers? What do you make, Pete, of that statement? Doesn't it imply to you that God expects efforts from our part? My answer to you would be, yes, he does. The same God who works in us also calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But never forget that while we are working out our salvation, he is working in us. To the church in Laodicea, when he confronts them for being, for being lukewarm, he says to them that the way that you remedy your situation is by coming to me. The one who calls the church to conquer is the one who will supply them with the strength to conquer. So let us take a look again at Jesus one last time as Jesus sees 
uh, as John sees him. In Revelations 1, verses 14 to 16, this is the words of John describing Jesus. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When John says that the eyes of Jesus blaze like fire, he is meaning that just like fire burns away all that is fake to reveal what is true, the eyes of Jesus do the same. No one can fool Jesus or deceive him because his eyes see everything, meaning that he knows fully and perfectly the state of his church, making him able to perfectly diagnose her, diagnose her problem. When John says that Jesus has feet that are like polished bronze heated in a furnace, it speaks to the purity, power, and stability of Jesus. This means that Jesus is not compromised. It means that he is not mixed and that nothing can throw him off balance. When John says that the hair of Jesus is white like wool and like snow, it speaks to the fact that Jesus is pure, that he is ancient, and that he has infinite wisdom meaning that Jesus knows exactly how to help his people. You can trust God that whatever he says is the best thing for you. When John says that the face of Jesus shines bright like the sun, it speaks to the brilliance and brightness of Jesus whose rays carry healing. In Malachi 4 verse 2, he says that the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And the wings refer to the rays of the sun. The rays of the, of the brightness of Jesus transforms and heals people. In Numbers 6 verse 25, when the, when the priest blesses the people, he says to them, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. In, two, in one Corinthians, um, 2 Corinthians, Jesus, um, Paul says that we be, with unveiled faces beholding the face of Jesus, the brightness of the face of Jesus are transformed. And the church, the lampstand of Jesus, will be transformed because the face of Jesus stands in the middle. And God calls us to look to him for transformation. But it also not only highlights the grace of Jesus and the desire of Jesus to bless his church, but it shows the unapproachability of Jesus. He is approachable only because he chooses to be. When John says that out of the mouth of Jesus comes a double-edged sword, what, G, what um, John is saying is that the words of Jesus are as powerful and as the most uh, as powerful as the most potent weapon. Such is the power and effectiveness of his words that even before any battle begins, Jesus has won it. And my friends, this is Jesus, and He stands in the midst of you. And not only does He stand in the midst of you. He walks in the midst of you, and he is active. And from the start of this year, if you're wondering, how am I going to do this year? I want you to remember that Jesus is in the midst of you, and he is powerful. Thank you, Red Point.